0: And we're going to be looking at Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call, on the, name, uh, call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches." Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Amen. Father, we pray that your blessing would be upon the preaching of your word and upon each one that is here. Uh, To the hearing of it, we pray that you would enable us to honor and glorify you and our responses to it. And Father, may we be strengthened with all might by your Spirit in the inner man, uh, that we might not only know the hope and the power and the love and the provisions that we have in Christ Jesus, but Father, we would have the faith to exercise them to the advancement of your kingdom. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. may be seated. From my perspective, one of the most memorable phrases in the whole book of Acts is uh, the one in verse 15, where it says, And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? The demon was in effect saying, Who do you think you are? You have no authority, no power that we don't give to you. Uh, But the question I want to ask is, Why did the demon know Paul? And I think there's at least three reasons why this demon would have known about Paul. The first is that the Scripture indicates that God marks and sets apart believers when they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a number of Scriptures. I'll just give you a little sampling here. Uh, Ezekiel 9, verse 4, says, Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So there is an angel that is marking the... Um, the people who have, uh, the holy people there who have put their faith in, in the coming Messiah. It's an invisible mark to men, but it's quite visible to angels and demons. And Revelation tells us a little bit more about this mark. In Revelation 7, verse 3, one angel said to his troops, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And again, it was something nobody else could tell that these people were marked in this way, but angels and demons had eyes to be able to see what this mark was, and they were not allowed to destroy that city until these elect uh, had been so marked. Revelation 9, verse 4, speaks of the bondage and the affliction that people have who do not have this mark of the Lord in their foreheads. Revelation 14, verse 1 says that the 144,000 have the name of the Father on their forehead. So whether you take this symbolically or, or literally, there is something that it makes it obvious to angels and to demons who have spiritual eyes to see in the spirit world that these people are marked. They are set apart by God. They, are, they belong to the Lord. So I think there is at least one reason uh, why he would know about that, but I think there has to be more because not every demon is going to know, you know specific names of individuals. I think the second uh, reason is that uh, Satan's kingdom has been taking hit after hit as Paul has been uh, casting out demons uh, from various people. It would be very hard for some of these demons to not be talking with each other about what is going on, and uh, it's clear Christianity has been invading Satan's territory, and Paul's one of the chief culprits uh, for doing this. The third reason they knew Paul was that Paul was making a difference in culture, and Satan hates it when we make a difference in culture. You know, when we see opposition and persecution and people who are fighting back against us, it's not really a sign that we're losing. Revelation chapter 12. Read that sometime. Very, very encouraging. It indicates that when Satan sees that his time is short, he is infuriated. He does everything he can to fight back, and so it's actually a sign that he is losing. So, the demons knew Paul. My question this morning is, do demons know your name? If they do not, it may be because you are lacking one of these three things. It may be that you have never put your faith savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a fake believer like these Jewish exorcists were And if that is the case, you have no power against Satan or against uh, his uh, demonic hosts. Demons can mess around with you all that they want. Second, if you have never cast out demons or never resisted demons actively in some other way, their influence in your family, their influence in your household, uh, then it may be that uh, Satan really doesn't consider you to be very dangerous. Now, I know some of you... Uh, have engaged in exactly this. I've taught you how to pray over your home, how to cleanse it of demons, how to resist satanic attack in your lives, and you are noteworthy persons uh, in in Satan's eyes. Third, if you are a sleeping Christian, demons might be able to just safely ignore you. If you've not done anything to advance the cause of Christ, they may or they may not uh, be uh, taking notice of your name. And so the title of today's sermon is Do demons know your name? If they do, the likelihood is you've been doing some exploits for God. You're walking rightly with your Lord. Now, Paul certainly had nothing to fear from demons. Uh, Verse 11 says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. I want you to notice the first reason why Paul did not need to fear the demons. It does not indicate here it's because Paul is such a powerful, cool guy Uh, It did not say, Paul cast out demons, Paul did the other. It says, now God, God worked unusual miracles and he did it through Paul. Now that's a subtle, but it's a very profound difference. It is God who is the focus, Paul is merely the instrument. If it was up to Paul himself, he would be just a weak and a very vulnerable vessel. He would not have been a match uh, for any uh, demons that were out there. But because God had marked Paul, had set him apart, was indwelling Paul, these demons were scared. Uh, Paul and himself was no match, but Paul and God together were a winning majority. And this is true of us. Even if we're not able to engage in the unusual miracles that Paul uh, was engaged in here, this is true. When we are weak in our own selves, but we see that God is all in all, then there are great things that we can, uh, uh, that we uh, are going to be able to accomplish. So the first thing I want to point out is our focus needs to be on God, not on miracle men. In fact, really, there are no such thing as miracle men. There, there's a miracle God, okay? And our focus needs to be on God, not on man. But that phrase, unusual miracles, does beg for some explanation. There are some people who say that miracles, by their very nature, are unusual. That's all he's talking about and that um, these miracles were signs of an apostle, and that they passed away with the first century. Now, these uh, people actually are halfway right. They do have a point in what they are saying, uh, but are not completely right. There are two places uh, in the book of Acts where there are these kinds of unusual miracles. It's Acts chapter 5, when the other apostles were being vindicated or authenticated by God as being apostles through these signs of an apostle, through these unusual miracles uh, that they were able to do. And then there's Acts chapter 19 uh, here uh, where Paul was authenticated as an apostle. In Acts 5, the apostles seemed to be able to do miracles on demand, just anywhere and everywhere. And the miracles were extremely unusual. Let me just remind you of what happened in Acts chapter 5. Uh, People would line the streets with uh, sick people and demon-possessed. And as Peter is walking by, you know, people say, oh, quick, Peter's going down this one. They'll stick people out on the sidewalk. And if so much as his shadow touched that person, he was healed. Uh, There were unusual things that were going on, and everybody was healed that his shadow touched. Uh, There were uh, unusual provisions, unusual judgments. That was the chapter where Ananias and Sapphira are standing in front of him they're struck dead at Peter's word. And so these were unusual signs and miracles even for Peter and uh, definitely uh, for the church, and it authenticated uh, their authority as apostles. I believe that's what's going on uh, here. Paul was being authenticated in his office as apostle. Now, why would he need to be in this special way now? He's been an apostle for a number of years, and I believe there there were... probably some other times where he had to be authenticated, but from the Scripture, this is where we have the information. During the three years that he was here, there were false teachers going around who were doing everything that they could to demote Paul and say, he's not really an apostle. You don't really need to listen to Paul, and certainly you don't need to listen to his writings that they are not Scripture. And so in Paul's epistles, what he does is he is defending his apostleship. He says, yes, it is true. I am an apostle born out of due time. Uh, I am an apostle who is the last of the apostles. But it is not true what these people are saying when they claim, hey, Paul never walked with Christ. He can't be an apostle. He wasn't trained for three years. And so Paul in Galatians says, Oh, no, I was directly appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle. Yes, they were trained for three years, but I was trained for three years in Arabia, and I was trained by direct revelation throughout those three years by the Lord Jesus. He says, I am in no way less than the most eminent of the apostles. And so he's defending his apostleship. Now, First and Second Corinthians were letters that were written during the three years he was here in Ephesus, and these false teachers are not only in Ephesus, they're in Corinth as well. So here's what Paul tells them. He not only throughout those two epistles is defending his apostleship in various ways, but one of the ways is he's saying, look, I have had all of the signs and wonders and miracles that authenticated the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Let me read that for you. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 and 12. I've become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds, and so the unusual miracles were putting Paul on a par with all of the other uh, twelve so that 's what 's going on in part. it was unusual. Um, For the church, it was unusual. For the apostles, it was unusual for Paul himself. Earlier, he was not able to do these kinds of miracles. Certainly later in his life, there's many evidences he was not able to do these kinds of miracles. Once his authentication had been established, there was no longer any purpose for them. And you see the miraculous dropping off significantly for him. Let me give you some examples. 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, Paul tells Timothy no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Your frequent diseases is what infirmities means. Now, if miracles were always on demand for Paul, like they were earlier in Acts 19, and they were for the apostles in Acts chapter 5, the question comes, this is his best friend that he's hung around all the time. How come Paul didn't just Heal Timothy of his frequent infirmities. And for that matter, why didn't he heal himself of his own uh, eye diseases that he had? And uh, what we discover is that ordinarily miracles didn't just come on demand by the apostles. When they were having signs of an apostle, yes, it was on demand. But ordinarily, it's by God's sovereign good pleasure. We don't know why we pray for one individual and that person is healed and we pray for another individual, and he's not. It's up to God to do it. It is not uh, up to men. Ordinarily, they're not on demand. We still pray for miracles, but we won't get the kind of miracles you find in Acts chapter five. Second Timothy four verse twenty gives another example where Paul was not able to heal. This is, by the way, near the end of his life. He says he's about to pass on to glory. He says, "Trophimus, I have left in Miletus, sick." Unusual miracles were not at work in his life because when they were at work, everybody that he touched was healed. Uh, He couldn't heal Trophimus. He left him behind sick. Another person he wasn't able to automatically heal was Epaphroditus. Philippians 2.27 says, "...for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." The passage is saying Paul grieved for this person uh, who was having this sickness, unusual miracles were not at work in his life. But um, uh, some people say, okay, well, this is an evidence all miracles are beginning to pass away in the apostle's life. There are signs of an apostle. Once the apostolate has finished, all miracles have ceased altogether. And I do not see that uh, for two different reasons. And the, the first reason is that if these unusual miracles are indeed what 2 Corinthians 12.12 12 calls the signs of an apostle, and I happen to believe that they are, so if the two are identified, all that proves is that unusual miracles have passed away and signs of an apostle have passed away, but it does not mean that what Mark 16.17 speaks of as signs of a believer have passed away, and he talks about those signs as being all kinds of different miracles and indicates in context that they're going to continue until the Great Commission is finished. Um, Secondly, the very word unusual miracles implies that he's contrasting these miracles that Paul is right now engaging in from usual miracles, ordinary miracles that ordinary Christians and ordinary believers uh, were uh, able to... Uh, engage in. The literal rendering of unusual miracles is never happening miracles. Never happening miracles. What made the miracles in Acts 19 never happening miracles? Miracles that nobody's ever seen before, and I'm going to quickly go through and show you. There's three hints in verse 12. There's a lot more hints in Acts chapter 5, but let me give you the three here. Um, Acts chapter 12, so that even handkerchiefs, or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. First, Paul could heal these people whether they were close enough for him to touch with his hands, verse 11, or whether they were far distant from Paul, verse 12. Now, this is an unusual thing. Paul was able to cast out demons without even being close to those people who were demon-possessed. That is very unusual, very remarkable. I've never seen anybody else uh, who has been able to do that. He did not have to be present. Second, what is even more remarkable, he doesn't even have to know that a person has a disease or that a person has particular demons that were infesting him for it to happen. All that had to happen is for a cloth that had been touched by Paul to touch the demon-possessed person that demon left him. Now, the closest thing you're going to find to this in the Gospels with Jesus is when that woman who was hemorrhaging touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. But this is even more remarkable. Jesus was present with his garment there. Here, the garment, Paul didn't even know where it's going to go. And he just touched it, and that garment, whoever it touches, that person was healed or had the demons cast out of it. Very, very unusual. Very unusual third remarkable or unusual thing about this is that everyone appears to be healed. They're touched by the cloth, they are healed. Now, in Acts 5, it's similar. It says of Peter when he was being authenticated, So they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That's very unusual. Paul was not able to do it earlier. He was not able to do it later on in his life. And I think those three characteristics make it unusual on anybody's definition. So I have no problem whatsoever with people who say signs of an apostle have ceased. Why? Because the apostolate has ceased. These unusual miracles have ceased. I have no problem with that. But I do have a problem when people make a logical fallacy and they go from that and they say, all miracles have ceased. That's not what the text says. Ephesians 2 and other things I think would limit it to the apostle. You can trace, though, the last 2,000 years of history and you will not find a single individual who has been able to walk into every hospital that he goes through in the city and every person in that hospital is gone. The hospitals are put out of business. You just won't find it. I guarantee you, you will not find that kind of unusual thing. But that is exactly what was happening with the apostles and with Peter, something very unusual. Now, why did they even have to do this? It's very similar to Moses. People, Moses was going to be bringing Scripture, foundational Scriptures, and there was a lot of people questioning, you know, is Moses really have the right to do this? to be commanding us around and telling us what God says he ought to do. This is not normally. People don't like to receive that kind of information. And over and over, God had to authenticate Moses so that people would, without any question, say, yes, he is a direct representative of God. And here are some of the miracles that God did to authenticate him. He enabled Moses to part the Red Sea, gave manna miraculously every day that they were in the wilderness, um, sent earthquakes to swallow up people who resisted his authority and different things like that. Now, here is a new group of people who are forming a new Israel, bringing them out in a new exodus, as it were. They're going to be writing some new scriptures, and it is just as audacious as Moses doing what he did when he gave them the scriptures. And so God gives them signs of an apostle to authenticate them. And just as we would not expect that every century we're going to have the Dead Sea or the Red Sea, uh, excuse me, Red Sea parted, and, you know, manna and other things like that, we shouldn't expect that everything that the apostles did are going to be passed on. But that is a far cry from saying, as some cessationists do, that all miracles have ceased. You see, it wasn't only the 12 apostles who were given the power to perform miracles, heal, and cast out demons. In Luke chapter 10, 70 disciples were given, not apostles, but 70 disciples uh, were given the same ability to cast out demons and to um, uh, perform miracles and to heal. Uh, Clearly, the miracles of Mark 16 are anticipated to continue until the Great Commission is finished. And that just says those who believe. Ordinary believers are given that. Now, that passage is very interesting because it connects these these signs and wonders and miracles with the presence of the kingdom and Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? It's a a testimony that the kingdom has come. Daniel 4, verse 3 indicates, Wherever the kingdom of God is manifested, there will be signs and wonders. Uh, Jesus said exactly the same thing. He said, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God... Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Surely, it's proof positive that the kingdom is there. Now, if we are, as I believe we are, in the time of the kingdom, then what is happening according to the Gospels and according to the book of Acts is that part of the advancement of the kingdom is that signs and wonders and miracles are going to be accompanying the kingdom. Um, The point is, it's not just signs of the apostle, there's other functions for Uh, uh, for these miracles. The first 1,000 years of church history has seen non-stop confrontation of the demonic, casting out of demons. In fact, there is not a single case, a recorded case that we have, of people getting converted where they did not... you know, have the people breaking off uh, anything that was connected with the demonic, uh, like verse 19 of our chapter here, and breaking off any connections from the past, their ancestors, any legal ground that Satan might have. I think we need to take this a lot more seriously in our own age than we, we tend to do. Burning the bridges to the demonic past. But now, in verses 13 through 16... We're going to be seeing a number of major contrasts between the world's way of dealing with the demonic and God's way. Whether God's way is unusual with the apostles or whether it's the usual way that usual people and non-apostles engaged in, it's going to be the same kind of features you're going to see here. First thing that we see is um, that many Jews made a career of trying to cast out demons. They made a career out of it. Now. The ancient world, everybody believed in demons. It's only modernists today who think, oh, demons don't exist. And they have a hard time explaining some of the phenomenon out there. But uh, the world had to deal with it. But without Christ, they have no hope of dealing with it. And yet they, you know, some people used incantations and different types of things. And they tried to make money off of doing this. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists... So the first point of contrast is that they made a career out of deliverance. You don't find that in the Bible. You find believers casting out demons, yes, but that was only a part of their ministry. And there are many people who have gotten themselves in trouble by making it a full-time ministry to be dealing with the demonic. And they found themselves many times demonized themselves because they're going into something that is beyond their calling. It has ruined several good men and women. Second, uh, we know from ancient literature that these exorcists made their living doing so. They charged money to say the incantations and say the names of God and the names of the patriarchs and other Hebrew mumbo-jumbo that they, they gave. They made a lot of money off of this, whereas Jesus and the apostles never charged a dime to cast a demon out of a person, okay? That's a big contrast. For them, it was a ministry, not a career, Third, these Jewish exorcists had to wander from place to place. The term itinerant, some translations have it, just wandering. Why would they have to wander from place to place? Well, uh, some people say it was very similar to what went on in the early 1800s when you had these snake oil salesmen and uh, people who would give this toothpaste that really worked to enamel off your teeth. Um, but um, they had to keep traveling because otherwise people would find out what uh, fakes they were and they would not be able to keep making uh, the money that they were making. So it may have been something along those lines. I think some of the traveling revival and healing ministries are frauds that could not survive if they had to stay local. Fourth, the literature of these exorcists shows that they were into magic, not grace. There is a world of difference between the two. God's grace frees those who submit to His Lordship. It's very God-dependent. But magic is an attempt for man to control and to manipulate the spirit world. It is a man-centered approach to the demonic. Now, the trouble here is that these people don't know Jesus personally. They spoke of him as the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They're using Christ's name kind of like a magic uh, formula, not as a relationship, and it's dangerous stuff. You cannot control the demonic with magic. Uh, in fact, uh, those who engage in magic are actually manipulated by Satan. He uses them to, their own, to his own purposes. Now, those who engage in magic, they may be successful sometimes. We've seen the demonic healings. We've seen all kinds of stuff that goes on. So long as demons are able to continue to maintain control, they don't mind taking away symptoms uh, and uh, enabling the person for uh, a temporary time to have some kind of relief. But grace is God himself delivering. It is not man controlling. So the fourth contrast is the contrast of magic versus grace. Fifth, verse 13 says that they took it upon themselves to do this exorcism. This is not by divine guidance, by divine leading. God did not call them to do this. There are very few people who are called to a deliverance ministry, and they better be called if they're going to engage in it. I have acquaintances Uh, who had been destroyed in their ministries after a brief period of going into deliverance ministry, and they found themselves harassed by demons. Uh, They were taking this ministry upon themselves. God had not called them. Well, if God doesn't call you, he's not going to give you the power to carry through on the calling. Now, some people might say, okay, well, I need to back off from this completely, but let me clarify a little bit here. If you are harassed by the demonic or your family is harassed by the demonic, you are automatically called by God to protect your family. You have jurisdiction over your family. What I'm talking about here is people who are picking fights that are not their own. They're going out and, oh, there's some demonic over there. Let's go over there and confront that. And they go into temples of, uh, of India and other places trying to cast out the demons and they find them, whoa, this is, this is more than I realized that I was taking on. Uh, So that's what I'm talking about. In Acts chapter 16, remember we saw that Paul waited for many, many days before he confronted the python demon. He was waiting for God (coughs) to call him to this specifically. And in this um, town, he does not confront uh, the demon Diana or Artemis, uh, depending on if you're Greek or Roman. He does not confront her uh, it was John, the Apostle John, who in a few years was going to directly confront uh, this demon right in the temple. So there needs to be a calling. We cannot take this upon ourselves or we're going to lack the power to be able to fight the demonic. A sixth contrast is that God's people in the book of Acts call upon the name of Jesus or petition the Father in Jesus' name or depended upon uh, Jesus' name Uh, you know, Jesus' provision, whereas these exorcists use the name as a talisman or as a fetish. Notice the wording. It's not saying they're calling upon or depending upon this name, but it says they took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now, if you read their manuals of how they do it, it's magic that they're engaging in. So they've got all of these names, names of patriarchs, especially Solomon. They think Solomon had wisdom into the... Uh, the, uh, the spirit world, and he gave them all kinds of formulas, and you know they derived their power from Solomon, but they would pronounce names and phrases and words they thought had power to bind the demonic. So they must have seen Paul say, in the name of Jesus, come out, and they see a remarkable deliverance, demon obviously coming out of this man, they say, wow, that name Jesus, whatever it is, is pretty powerful. We need to incorporate the word Jesus into our formulas that we're engaging in uh, with people. Um, and and so it's really using it as a, a fetish. But when Christians do anything in Christ's name, they're appealing to a personal relationship with Christ, the one who bought them and cleansed them with his blood and were seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It has nothing to do with the magic sound of a name, and it has everything to do... With relationship. Now you might think of it this way, especially the legal relationship that we have, that you could take a check out of my checkbook and you could sign Philip G. Kaiser, spell it exactly right, and uh, pronounce it exactly right, and yet it would have no authority to get any money out of my bank, unless I signed that checkbook. Now, why do we have the authority to sign in Jesus' name? It's because we died to our own identity when we became Christians. We rose in Christ, and we are now hidden in Christ. We cannot do anything in our own name. The moment we start doing things in our own name, in our own authority, we lose all authority. So, Christ has legally authorized us to be signers on his account. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heaven. And he tells us to sign on his spiritual account. And when we do so, we have the legal standing to receive those blessings. We have the legal standing to use that name against Satan. Here's a book that if you want um, to sh- see the, the right way of using the name of Christ, you can pick it up off of the back table in Christ's, uh, in Christ's name. So the name by itself does not have intrinsic power. It must be backed by a legal standing before God and, in point G, by our relationship with Jesus. Verse 13 says, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. This is amazing. They're, in effect, saying, We have no idea who Jesus is, but whoever he is that, that Jesus is preaching, that's who we exorcise by. And uh, they've seen this, Jesus, do marvelous things. But again, it's the way magic works. It tends to use formulas, incantations, magic amulets, potions to cure people. But what Daniel says is those who know their God shall do exploits. You've got to know him. So there's legal standing, there's relationship. Verse 14 addresses an eighth contrast. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. Now, these sons of Sceva, they're used to using their dad's office to, to get all kinds of things. He's a very influential man. So our dad's using his office for, uh, for influence. We're going to use this position for influence as well. Now, let me, let me tell you something. Whatever authority you may have on earth does not automatically translate into authority in heaven. When I first came to Omaha... I was ordained, set apart as a pastor. I had authority on earth. But I was not using my authority that I had as one who was seated with Christ in the heavenlies. In fact, initially, I didn't even recognize that I was being attacked by demons. I was, uh, especially when I would go to prayer, it was almost like my my mind would blank out. I would have the toughest time even formulating words in my mind. And I struggled fruitlessly in my own flesh and it was not until the Lord opened my understanding to realize this is demonic oppression that is going on that I began to have immediate relief. In fact, it was through reading Mark Bubeck's um, prayers, very scripture-based prayers, warfare prayers, that I began having the faith to pray as one who was seated with Christ in the It made all the difference in the world. In fact, this was the point at which I was beginning to see I was relying too much on human wisdom, position, perseverance, and strength. Until you learn how to lay claim to your resources in heaven, you're not going to have the power that you need. Verse 15 implies that Paul used such authority. The demon certainly knew him. But when the demon says in verse 15, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? He's in effect saying, who do you think you are? You have no authority. Apart from a personal union and communion with Jesus, you're going to get nowhere. You can't plead the authority of your parents. You can't plead the authority of your pastor. You've got to have authority based on union with Christ. Tenth, verse 16 shows the utter powerlessness of those who are not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was was leaped on them and overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. If you've never put your personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be just as powerless when you are confronted uh, with demons without protection. And so I would urge you, put your faith in Christ, cast your sins upon him because he was your substitute and say, Lord, I trust you that you have died for my sins and I receive your righteousness and I put that on for myself, but trust him as your own protector The eleventh contrast is in verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was glorified. Now, any time you see a ministry glorifying the name of a pastor or of a healer or of a deliverance worker, watch out. Probably there's pride that's creeping in there, and this person is going to himself become subject to demonic attack. Why? Because God resists the proud... He gives grace to the humble. The whole purpose of ministry is to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus. The twelfth contrast is holiness versus presumption. Verse 18 says, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. They did not want any legal ground to be given to Satan to be able to conquer them. They gave it all away. This is such an important uh, contrast. I want to spend a bit more time on it. Proverbs 28, verse 13, says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Uh, Ephesians 4, 27 indicates, When our sins are not confessed, it gives Satan an advantage or a foothold in our lives. In fact, unconfessed sin gives Satan all kinds of legal uh, rights to harass us. Let me just tell you a story. Uh, One person... Uh, that I had to deal with who was demon-possessed, recognized, nobody had told her, but recognized when I was many blocks away, Pastor Kaiser is coming, don't let him in the door. And the closer I was driving to this home, the more agitated she became. As I drove into the driveway, she started violently throwing up. And as I came in the front door and saw what was happening, I rebuked the demon in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, told him to be quiet, to leave her be, and to let her hear and let her to be able to understand, she immediately calmed down and began explaining this terrifying experience that was happening uh, within her and I pointed out that she has been giving god uh, giving Satan legal ground to be able to control her, and there was four sins in particular that I remember. And we went through, and I discussed those and explained that you are in deep danger if you do not get rid of these because you have already given Satan the legal ground. And I I remember she was willing to confess and forsake three of those sins, but the moment the words came off her lips that I cannot give up that fourth sin, the demon took over again, and there was nothing more I could do during that particular session. And there are many stories I could give you from the mission field of people who had power to even cast out demons and yet lost that power when they had unconfessed sin in their lives and then regained that power when they said, Lord, I confess it. I put it under the blood. I resolved to deal with this and to give restitution. They had power that was regained in their lives. But I think more important than stories is the Scripture. Ephesians 4 Verses 26 through 27 says, if you allow anger to continue in your bosom day after day, you let the sun go down upon your wrath, he says, you have given a foothold to Satan. It's like Satan has got his foot in that door and he's going to be able to come in. You've given him legal ground. The same is true of bitterness. You allow bitterness to fester, and you do not put that under the blood and work hard at getting rid of that and loving the person that you are bitter against and overcoming evil with good. If you do not deal with that seriously, you have given Satan some legal ground in your life. And the same is true of uh, uh, many other sins that uh, we might have uh, in our lives. And what Satan does when we've given him legal ground as he says, you know, you're trying to get rid of him. You're praying against him, and he 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 just has to look up at God's throne and say, "I don't have to leave, do I?" He's given me legal ground. God says, "No, you don't have to go. Don't have to go, and uh, you are powerless to to overcome that rebellion." The Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and almost always, when there is unresolved rebellion, you find that prayer for that person is futile. He has no power. And some of you, because you have been unwilling to confess your sins, it is no wonder that you are powerless. It's no wonder you're not receiving blessing from the Lord. Now, this might discourage you. You might say, well, all of us have sin. How in the world could we get over this if we've all got sin? It's not the presence of sin that is so critical. Uh, uh, David, in one of his psalms, uh, talked about the multitude of mercies which implies what? Multitude of sins, right? So it's not the presence of sin, but it's whether you have confessed it and resolved to forsake it and put it under the blood of Christ. That's the critical thing. You are free. He has no legal ground if you're willing to confess and resolve your sins. And I want you to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. I I know I've preached on this, uh, I don't know how many years ago, but uh, it bears repeating. This is a powerful image of what's going on behind the scenes uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you remember the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, they are trying to uh, resettle Israel, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, and there's all kinds of opposition that they're receiving, opposition from outside, Sambalat and Tobiah. There's political intrigues. There's intermarriage with the pagans. There's sexual uh, compromises. There's greed. There's anger. There's all kinds of things that are happening, And what Zechariah the prophet was doing is he was saying, look, guys, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood. I want to show you what is stimulating all of this resistance to your ministry. It's the demonic behind the scenes. Okay, Zechariah 3, beginning at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now, the filthy garments that we're going to be seeing here in the next... Uh, Verses, these filthy garments represent the believer's ongoing sins. And Satan is using those sins in the believer's life as legal ground to resist him, to resist the ministry. And this passage shows how we continually need the cleansing of Christ, continue to need to put on the armor of Christ, the clothing of Christ. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, the implication is that previously Joshua had been worthy of hellfire, but God had rescued him by his grace and from his pollution. Verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Once Joshua was cleansed and the legal ground that Satan had previously taken for a right to resist him, once that was removed and claimed back for God, he was able to have God standing at his right hand. God gave power to his prayers. God gave power to his ministry. And this is when i what I say that we daily need the clothing of Christ, here is a little booklet that I put together of some of Mark Bubeck's prayers, and I've thrown in a few of my own called Prayers for Spiritual Warfare." There's some extra copies I copied this morning on the back table that you can pick up or you can download it off of the uh biblical blueprints website. but in there, I show you not only prayers for the filling of the spirit daily but prayers. To lay claim, how do you pray every piece of armor? How do you pray doctrinal prayers that will be powerful in Satan's life? If you start praying those systematically, you're going to notice an incredible difference in your life. Scripture-based prayers. Pick up a copy, start praying them out loud. Now, we've got two more contrasts. Verse 19 says, Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. What they are doing is getting rid of everything from their old life that might cause them to fall. Anything. And this is such an important principle. I've been debating whether or not to uh, devote an entire sermon to it uh, next week. No, Brad's preaching next week, I think, the week after that. And, And I may still do that. Very, very important uh, passage, but just as God had the Israelites, when they were going into the land of Canaan, burn everything that could possibly be a stumbling block, Paul does the same with the Ephesians, and I think we need to do the same. Get rid of the Ouija board. It's not just an innocent little curiosity, a little game. It's something that will give Satan legal ground in your home. Get rid of dungeons and dragons. Get rid of New Age crystals and pyramids. Get rid of occult medicine. In fact, don't even hang around occult practitioners. Some of these chiropractors who have been trained in China and other places, they're getting more and more into New Age stuff. When they are laying their hands on you, it's more than just a physical adjustment there is something spiritual. You are setting yourself up for demonic attack. I would encourage you, to get a Christian chiropractor or somebody that's definitely not involved uh, in the occult. Uh, you need antithesis to be safe from demons, and any amount of syncretism whatsoever will open you up to demons influencing you. Let me just give you an example from my own life so that you're not thinking, I'm just preaching at you. Not very long ago, I don't remember how many years ago it was, I was up in Canada... And Kathy was receiving into our house a new Korean student, and usually they give some kind of a housewarming gift, and this particular one gave a, it's like a tourist uh, thing, but it was an idol, and he explicitly said, oh yeah, this is something that we pray to. you pray to it, your diseases will go away. Well, Kathy was planning to just get rid of it, toss it later, but she didn't want to offend the person, and so she thanked him and you know, welcomed him to the home. Almost immediately she started getting a headache, and that evening, her it was just like overwhelming throughout her body, and she felt herself falling, falling, falling. She thought she was dying. And it was all she could do to just be able to whisper the words, "Jesus, help me." And immediately she began to get some help. She called me up in Canada, and I prayed over her, prayed over the family and uh, cleanse the house, but I told her, get rid of that idol. Don't even put it in the garbage can in the alley. It shouldn't be on our property. And uh, she did get rid of that. But here was a situation where very innocently we are planning to get rid of it, but because of the testimony, this guy had explicitly said, you pray to it, it will heal. We would received it. He sees us as being syncretists. It gave legal ground to Satan. And there have been other times where we've had to cleanse our house of demons, and if you don't know how to do that, you need to ask me about that because... We need to have our houses sanctuaries, places of peace, where we can walk into that and not feel any harassment whatsoever from the demonic. But it can so easily uh, happen to any of us. And any of the other times we've had to cleanse, it's either been because of sin in our lives or because there's some kind of thing that we've brought in that we've not immediately dealt with. Take this point seriously. Last point of contrast is in the last phrase of verse 19. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, a piece of silver was a a grown man's average wage. That's how much they would ordinarily be paid. Now, to translate this into modern terms so that you can understand the value that's going on here, let's just take a very moderate wage, $8 an hour, as being uh, a man's wage, and you multiply that times um, eight hours in a day, then the 50,000 pieces of silver in modern equivalency would be $3,200,000 that was burned on that day. Now, here's the point. They didn't sell it on eBay. They didn't say, whoa, $3,200,000, that'd be enough money you know, to add a gymnasium and some other stuff to our buildings. No, they got rid of it. Uh, They did not want anybody else being, uh, being hindered by this or being taken advantage by Satan by it or defiled by it. They burned it. And we, too, need to count the cost of what it means to be believers and burn things in our lives that in any way cause us to be stumbled. This is warfare, and people need to realize that there is a cost to war. Well, let's end by looking at the results of all of this. Verse 15 gives the demons testimony. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Of course the demons knew Jesus. They trembled in His presence. They knew all about His virgin birth, His perfect life, His death. They knew about His resurrection, His exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Why? Because He had triumphed over principalities and powers. They had been confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ firsthand. The words, Jesus I know... He uses the word gnosko, which is knowledge of experience. This, this demon's been in contact. He's been confronted by Jesus himself. Now, it may have been in various ways, but it wouldn't surprise me if the darkness on the cross was in part all of the demons of the world ganging up on Jesus during those three hours, and he could see we are no match for the Lord Jesus. Now, the word for Paul, I know, is different. It is epistemi, which simply means I possess information about Paul. That's all it means. So he's heard the other demons talking about you know, the harassment that Paul has given to them. He's heard about this. They've been studying Paul. They know they can't mess with him either. But this rage and this frustration at their shrinking kingdom, and it was shrinking fast in Ephesus, if you look at the history there, was, meant that when these exorcists came, they vented their rage and their fury, or he, the demon, maybe it was just singular, vented it upon the exorcists who ordinarily would be allies with them. You know, they weren't too worried about these exorcists. They were really on the same team. But using this name, they're already ticked off about the name of Jesus. These exorcists using this name, they vented it on them. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled of the house naked and wounded. To flee from a house naked and wounded, you've got to be terrified by those demons. And let me tell you something. Demons can be terrifying, very, very terrifying. When I worked in the psych ward up in British Columbia, um, I ran across a number of demon-possessed people up there, and there was this one frail, tiny, thin-boned little old lady Uh, who was demon-possessed, that was uh, scary indeed. Even when she was completely restrained, she had the power to throw, I remember one time, five big men off of her. She could lift these big tables and filing cabinets and throw them, and they didn't know what to do because they didn't believe in demons. They didn't know how to explain the supernatural power that this woman uh, uh, had up there. And uh, one time she escaped from their clutches, And I'm just coming up the elevator, because I was a janitor, lowly janitor, and I'm just about to come out the doors when she comes running in there, stuck her foot in the pail, looked at me with glowering eyes, and at the name of Jesus, she fled. And you should have seen the staff. They fled, too. She was pretty scary. But humanists who have studied the paranormal as science have on occasion been so terrified. You read about some of what they're doing. They're so terrified, they've I'm never going to touch this stuff again. But you know what happens? Curiosity just gets them back in there. Such a fascinating world that they get sucked right back in. And I think that's what it was with these Jewish exorcists. They're fascinated by the demonic even though they have no power over the demonic. Without Christ, you have no protection. But the third result was the triumph of the gospel. Though this confrontation was somewhat disconcerting, it opened people to realize for the first time they needed Jesus. They were helpless without Him. And greater is he who was in these apostles uh, and these Christians than the person who was in that demon. Verse 17, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. That is the work of grace. Grace makes you fear the right thing. Who are they fearing? It's no longer the demons. They're fearing Jesus because they can see Jesus is so much more powerful than Uh, than the demons were. None of us are safe without Jesus. Now, here's the question. Who do you fear? It's kind of when you start talking about demons and you start getting anxious, it may be an indicator that you do not yet have the kind of intimacy and close walk with God that makes you totally confident even in the presence of demons. You see, the more you taste of his sweetness, of his goodness, of his greatness, the more you will fear God and the less you will fear demons. Now, the result of that fear is seen in the repentance, the burning of the occult books in verse 19, and then the spread of the word in verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What did it prevail over? The word of the Lord prevailed. Well, it prevailed over demons. It prevailed over the hearts of men as well. In Revelation 12, which was written to Ephesus and the other churches in Asia Minor there, just a few years later, not very long uh, later, it says they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. There is your two tools. You you apply the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to your sins on a regular basis, and you apply it to the lintels of the doorways of your house, and you apply it to your children, and you apply it to your wife, and you find this cleansing and this protection that comes through Christ's blood. And then, with confidence, you utter on your lips the word of your testimony. You take the scriptures and you make it your own. And you say, yes, I believe that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You make testimonies of faith using the word of God. Those two, the blood, the word of your testimony, are powerful in overcoming demons. And sometimes when you say the word, sometimes you can visibly see a tangible change in, in those who are demonized, those who are demon-possessed. Uh, one of the most remarkable, Neil Anderson tells one story of a demon-possessed man who was trying to kill him, and he calmly kept quoting uh, the Scriptures to the demon that was there, Scriptures like First John 3, 8. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And each time he did it, it was like that man was thrown backwards by the word. Now, the demon was cast out, this guy got converted, and he testified to Neil, he says, "It was the weirdest thing. I knew this demon was taken over me. I could feel his rage, his desire to kill you, but every time I came at you and you gave those scriptures, it was like we were being punched by this invisible force." So there was a there was a case very tangibly where the Word of God prevailed over the demon and the Word of God prevailed over the heart of this man and he be- became converted. And uh, it certainly uh, caused the gospel to triumph in Ephesus. Shortly after Paul left Ephesus, the apostle John came there and God led him to pray right in the temple of Diana or Artemis, uh, depending on, you know, whether you're Greek or Roman. Right in there and the 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 altar broke to pieces when he prayed and half the temple fell down and tons of people became converted. Uh, it was a powerful move of God's spirit in Ephesus. Then later on in 262, it burned down and there wasn't anybody to even want to rebuild it. The, the word of God prevailed so strongly in Ephesus, it turned that entire culture upside down. Praise God. And we live in a, we live in a city that is largely... Uh, you know, dedicated to, to Satan and to, uh, to, to humanism and to, to other things. But if God could conquer and turn upside down the city of Ephesus, there is no reason why he cannot turn upside down Omaha and all the surrounding towns around about us. He is powerful. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And it's only in his power that we can find victory. May each one of us take very seriously the song we're about to sing here, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are mighty, that you have chosen to conquer every principality and power, that all nations will fall before you, that all kings will bring uh, their gifts uh, into uh, your courts, that uh, you have destined Jesus Christ to be the ruler over all the kings of the earth. And that 1 Corinthians 15 says that he must remain at your right hand until all enemies are put under his feet, the last enemy being death, when he comes back and the death will be swallowed up in victory. Father, we rejoice that we have been, as fa- uh, feeble creatures, allowed to be a part of the advancement of your great commission. Father, give us faith, give us boldness, Enable us to see the the power uh, that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ and from Christ's resurrection. May we not have our eyes constantly cast to the ground, uh, feeling hopeless, feeling bedraggled, but may we look with the eyes of faith and to see that we are actually seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That as Revelation 2 says, that we uh, who overcome, at least, are able to bear the rod that Jesus has to smite the nations. And I pray that we would be used in your hand to cause Omaha to bow its knees before you, to break through any of the demonic strongholds and high things that have exalted themselves against the knowledge of you in this congregation, in our families, in our own lives, and then Father, amongst our associates, in our neighborhoods, and that you would receive the glory as we see your kingdom advancing through signs and wonders and miracles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.